Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 6145 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm your host Asanda Matsaunyane and I'm with Onele Nzinzi Jonale. Jualani Tulo and Musibudi Makura on studio today. Let's take a look at our top stories this hour. South African President Jacob Zuma kicks off state visit to Mozambique. Efforts to give Pan-African Parliament more powers face delay. Landslides are hampering relief deliveries in Nepal. In economics news, UN lowers its growth estimate for global economy. And then in sports, Namibia beat Mauritius in Kosafa Cup. First up, let's get the news with Onelenzins. Algerian troops ambushed and killed at least 22 militants allied to Islamic states as they held a meeting east of Algiers near Bouira yesterday one of the country's largest military operations in recent years. The state news agency APS said this is a major counter-terrorism operation, the largest in terms of militants killed in years. Militants' attacks have been rare since the 1990s war with Islamist insurgents. A suspected Boko Haram suicide bomber killed at least six people yesterday at a cattle market in the rural town of Gakida in Nigeria's northeastern Adamawa state. Witnesses put the figure higher, saying up to 10 people had been killed. Thousands of people continue being killed in Boko Haram's six-year insurgency that at its height saw the militant Islamist control an area the size of Belgium. The group has, however, been pushed from most of the territory it controlled in the past few weeks. For the first time yesterday, foreign journalists have b- were barred from reporting on some areas of protests in Burundi, the capital's Musaga district. The police say it is in the interest of journalists as security was not ensured. Four, four key private radio stations were attacked and closed during the coup bid, and there is now virtually no independent media in the country, with government broadcasts relying on presidential messages. Several journalists, civil society members, and leaders of the anti-third term protests have gone into hiding fearing arrests or attacks from government supporters. The Al-Shabaab terrorist group is expected to attempt to derail the political process in Somalia. According to the United Nations' most senior official in the country, Nicholas K. Al-Shabaab has created widespread insecurity in the country and in the region as a result of its terrorist activities. K., the head of a UN mission in Somalia, told the Security Council that vigilance is needed to prevent the process from being disrupted. I remain concerned about security in Somalia and about the threat posed by al-Shabaab to the wider sub-region, demonstrated by the heinous attack on Kenya's Garissa University in April. We need to monitor closely and be able to respond to any sign that al-Shabaab is benefiting from their links to extremist groups in Yemen and from the instability there. 
With so much at stake between now and 2016, we can expect al-Shabaab to do everything it can to derail the political process in Somalia. And finally, Mozambicans want South Africa's President Jacob Zuma and his delegation to discuss the recent attacks on foreign nationals with their President Philippe Nyusi. Zuma will be in Maputo later this morning on a two-day state visit. His visit is set to strengthen bilateral relations between the two countries. The locals on the streets of Maputo say they are not happy at the treatment of their countrymen and women in South Africa. Without unity, we can't uh, achieve our goals because we are one as Africa. We represent uh, one continent. And if we can be one in our vision, one in our objective, we can help each other. I would love to hear something better between Mozambique and South Africa because there is a lot of Mozambicans working there from long term. So please, President Zuma and Philip News, they must stand now in the round table and speak about it. We need the President Zuma to tell his people to consider us when you're going there, then we'll consider them when they come here. Channel African News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele, there for that news update. If you've just joined us, welcome to our show, Africa Rise and Shine, here on Channel Africa, broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Asanda Matsaunyani. South Africa and Mozambique are set to strengthen relations as President Jacob Zuma undertakes a two-day state visit to that country later this morning. Mozambique remains Pretoria's biggest trading partner in the continent. President Zuma and his Mozambican counterpart, Philippe Nyusi, are also expected to discuss the recent spate of attacks on foreign nationals, mainly from Maputo and other African countries. Presidential correspondent Ntebo Mukobo is there and filed us this report. A country once divided by civil war, Mozambique is currently Africa's best growth story, recording at least 7% economic growth. This growth is fueled by recent guest discoveries of its shores. And for South Africa, which has revised its growth to just over 2%, it sees this country as the best partner for economic growth. Currently, Pretoria has 300 companies in Mozambique, ranging from banking to telecommunication and the hospitality sector. The two-way trade between the two countries is almost 44 billion rent in favor of South Africa. And Pretoria says this visit will take relations between the two nations to higher levels. International Relations and Cooperation Minister Maite Nkwana Mashabane explains. This visit gives us another opportunity to look at new opportunities that we would refer to as game changers. That takes us to another level of our historic socio-economic partnerships, taking the region, our own neighborhood, forward in development. But it's not only trade that connects the two countries. Relations also extend to people with intermarriage between South Africans and Mozambicans. And people here want President Zuma and his delegation to discuss the recent attacks on foreign nationals. Without unity, we can't uh, achieve our goals because we are one as Africa. We represent uh, one continent. And if we can be one in our vision, one in our objective, we can help each other. But if we are fighting for division of countries, this is not the best idea. I would love to hear something better between Mozambique and South Africa because there is a lot of Mozambicans there. 
working there from long term. So please, President Zuma and uh, Philip News, uh, they must sort out, they must stand up in the round table and speak about it. We need the President Zuma to tell his people to consider us when you're going there, then we'll consider them when they come here. And Minister Nkwana Mashabane says what has happened will not derail them from building their economies for the good of their citizens. This visit also says our leaders do not want us to be derailed. They want us to focus on building this integration of our people, of our economies. If indeed we were throwing our arms up in the air, we don't know what to do with this, we wouldn't be having this kind of interactions. This is the stamp of approval to our historic ties and relations. And we use these visits to call on our people to remember where we come from, but also to remember that we are stronger when we are united and we do things together. And again, these countries are not only bound by shared history, they are also key players in continental politics and share similar views on peace and security in the continent. President Zuma will also use the occasion to discuss regional and continental cooperation. Their president will be accompanied by at least five cabinet ministers. I am Tebu Mokobo for SAPC Maputo, Mozambique. Efforts aimed at giving the Pan-African Parliament legislative powers face further delays as countries are yet to ratify the amended protocol of the Parliament. The outgoing president of the PAP, Bethel Amadi, presented the Parliament's activity report for the period between October 2014 and May 2015 to members in Midrand. Currently, the Continental Parliament, which is an African Union organ, has an advisory and consultative role. Amadi says this role does not bode well for the effective execution of its mandate, particularly regarding the establishment of the legal framework for the implementation of the programs and policies of the African Union. Zanele Butelezi compiled this report. African heads of states approved the reviewed protocol of the PEP during the African Union summit held in Equatorial Guinea last June. This marked a huge step towards giving the continental parliament the legislative powers it has been lacking. At least half of the AU 54 member states have to ratify the amended protocol before its provisions are binding. However, so far only Mali has ratified the revised protocol, while Kenya, Sudan and Equatorial Guinea have indicated plans to do so. The outgoing president of the PEP, Bethel Amadi, called on the incoming leadership of the parliament to continue to vigorously advocate for a speedy ratification of the protocol. When ratified, the Pan-African Parliament will be empowered to develop legal framework upon which Africa can begin the process of building strong democratic institutions that will deepen democracy, good governance, transparency and accountability, which are the prerequisites for development, peace and stability. Members of Parliament supported the call to push for a speedy ratification of the revised protocol. South African MP Floyd Shibambo says a concrete program of action is needed to avoid long delays. It also changed the organizational structure to have full-time members of the Pan-African Parliament. Because in the way it is now, it always disturbs the continuity of the Parliament when in every sitting there must be swearing in of new members, there must be changing of faces time and again because elections in various countries are not uh, happening at the same time. The revised protocol is the only instrument that can make at least this Parliament to have some teeth and direction. 
The lack of visibility of the Pan-African Parliament is also a challenge, as Amadi's report says many African citizens remain unaware of its existence and the mandate it has. South African MP Santosh Kalian and Zambia's Patrick Walula. We have in our countries a number of uh, trouble spots, and sometimes our response as Pan-African Parliament is sometimes quite slow and sometimes don't even respond, and respond when we respond is too late. Only when we are in session, then we want to put motions and debate the issue. We should have an ongoing present. In his report, Amadi says inadequate budget for the parliament to carry out its programs and activities remain a major challenge. The PAP, like most other organ, AU organs, relies heavily on financial and technical support from donors to implement its programs. This has not gone well for the effective implementation of its mandate and therefore needs to be addressed as a matter of priority. Meanwhile, Kellyan also gave notice for a motion calling for the inclusion of the principle of rotation for the position of president of the PAP in the rules and procedures of the parliament. The motion is supported by the Southern African Regional Caucus. The caucus is backing Mozambique to succeed Nigeria's Bethel Amadi as president of the parliament. Leader of the South African delegation, Dr. Hunadi Madime, says rotation helps unite regions. It helps a great deal in that it makes each region feel that it belongs to this continent. Their turn will come. Rotation says to whichever region, your turn will come. The parliament is expected to look at peace and security on the continent today. The focus is expected to fall on troubled countries such as Burundi, the Central African Republic, Libya, and the DRC, among others. Zanele Butelezi, Midrand. The government of Ethiopia says its national elections will be observed by African nations only. European and American observer missions will not be there when the country goes for its national election on the 24th of May. Koleta Wanjohi has more. Well, in the northeast of the country of South Sudan, there's fighting going on on and off between the government forces and the forces loyal to the former vice president, Dr. Rek Masyar. And that leads to... As Ethiopia prepares for its national elections on 24th May this year, the government has only allowed African observer missions to be part of the polls. Ethiopians will choose their local leaders as well as members of parliament. The party that will field the majority of parliamentarians will then get to choose the next prime minister. The Minister for Information for Ethiopia, Redwan Hussein, says that the European Union cited financial issues while the Americans did not show interest. When it comes to the American, it was Carter Center, um, as you might remember, um, which observed in 2005 election. Uh, and in 2010, it didn't appear. Um, so because of uh, um, um, the fact that they didn't show up, um, then we didn't send invitation to them. But had they requested, uh, it would have been considered. The government has approved African Union observer missions that will be comprised of about 59 missions, and nine are already in Ethiopia ahead of the polls. Some analysts say that there is an intentional move by the Ethiopian government to push away international observer missions for elections. However, Minister Redwan Hussein insists that African Union is a legitimate institution and it does not expect any European observer mission to doubt the legitimacy of its capability of observing. So it won't be the major, major complaint because th- th- there will be nothing to be added um, had there been um, some 10 or um, 
20 observation missions from Europe. Uh, if you look at the observation, the Ethiopian civic societies um, are going to field about tens of thousands of uh, their observers. Uh, we have teachers' association, we have uh, workers' associations, we have women and youth um, federations. They have about 250,000 members and 40,000 of them are being um, uh, to be assigned uh, for observation. So there is no one which um, would be concerned more than Ethiopians about Ethiopian election. The chairman of the National Electoral Board of Ethiopia, Merga Bekana, has also confirmed that Ethiopia will also depend on its national observer missions from the civil society organizations as well as representative bodies of different sectors of the population. We are expecting not less than 40, 42,000 domestic observers for this fifth round general election. Regarding the international observers, it's not the mandate of the board. Actually, we have received for long-term observation mission from African Union, and they are doing their job. For polling day, we are expecting also from Africa Union that we got information from the government. So far, more than 36 million people have registered to vote, an increase of 4 million voters from the 2010 national elections. Koleto Njoi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Almost two years since the outbreak of the conflict in South Sudan, the situation there is worsening, according to the head of UNMIS, the UN mission in South Sudan. Ellen Margaret Lodge said people continue to die. There are also now more than 2 million internally displaced people in that country. Joshua Mali spoke with Ellen Margaret Lodge after she recently briefed the Security Council. He began by asking her about the current situation. Well, in the northeast of the country of South Sudan, there's fighting going on, on and off, between the government forces and the forces loyal to the former vice president, Dr. Roik Masya, and that leads to people being internally displaced, etc. So people are being killed, internally displaced, and at the same time the economy is in difficulties because, as you know, the oil price has gone down and the production of oil has been heavily reduced in South Sudan due to this ongoing conflict. Also in your briefing you said the absence of a peace agreement is impeding the execution of UNMIS's mandate. In what ways is this so? Well, we got a new mandate uh, after the conflict broke out, but we are encountering difficulties on the ground ever so often in moving freely around by uh, being stopped and turned back and so on by the parties. And... Uh, both parties actually, so that makes it difficult then. And you also said that uh, you hope that the political stalemate will be resolved early this year, but that has not been the case. From your own assessment, is there a possibility of a political solution soon? Well, I'm not directly involved in the peace talks. It's led by the regional organization ICAT. The last round of talks broke up on the 6th of March, and I know they are consulting in how to bring it forward. I can only say that we need a peace agreement yesterday rather than today in order to address all the other challenges facing South Sudan. Uh, I cannot predict when it will happen, but I hope so. 
Now, in the absence of this, you ask the Security Council to take action to compel the conflicting sides to reach a compromise for the sake of peace and stability. I know that the Sanctions Committee is uh, working on a set of possible sanctions if this doesn't happen. Beyond that, what other sort of action are you asking the Security Council to take? I'm basically asking the Security Council and members of the Council to use whatever political influence they have on the parties uh, and to engage with the EGAT mediation. As you know, two of the members of the Council are part of the so-called Troika. There's also talk about an EGAT plus where China uh, alongside the Troika will be involved and five African countries uh, are also being selected to participate in the mediation efforts uh, to try and convince the two parties to reach an agreement. The permanent representative of South Sudan, Francis Deng, did praise your commitment and cooperative approach. What particular aspects of your approach do you think is uh, found to be worth of this praise? Well, I don't know, he hasn't told me, but the approach I have taken coming to South Sudan, and I have said to everybody of my interlocutors, the president, the ministers, if they have an issue with the mission, please call me and let us discuss and see if we can solve it. And likewise, I go to them if I have an issue that needs to be solved. My approach is to try and talk and discuss it instead of slamming each other in the press. Head of UNMIS, the UN mission in South Sudan, Ellen Margarete Lodge, talking there to UN Radio's Joshua Mali. Mskilizaji, jiunge nasi katika kusherekea sikuku ya Afrika. Channel Africa, sauti ya mzinduko wa Afrika. The theme for Africa Month is We Are Africa, opening the doors of learning and culture to promote peace and friendship from Cape to Cairo. South Africa has planned a full month of activities leading up to and including Africa Day on the 25th of May. Je vous invite de nous joindre pour célébrer la journée africaine. Channel Africa will bring you daily reports and packages on the events, but join Channel Africa on the 23rd of May when we'll be bringing you a live broadcast from festivities in the multinational Yeovil area of Johannesburg in all our six languages. Junta-se a nós na celebração do Dia de África. Then join us again on Africa Day, the 25th of May, when we will bring you a further live outside broadcast from the Africa Day commemorations in Cape Town, Johannesburg. Africa Day celebrates the day when the organizations of African Union OAU, the precursor to the African Union AU, was formed in 1963. So stay tuned to Channel Africa for more details closer to the events. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I'm Asanda Mazaunyani. Democratic Republic of Congo President Joseph Kabila has called for national dialogue as the country prepares for elections. The opposition, however, remains divided on the proposed dialogue. Jean-Noel Bamwezwe has more from the capital, Kinshasa. 
The political situation is currently full of confusion here in the Democratic Republic of Congo as there is only a year left for President Joseph Kabila to end his second term. That's indeed his last term in the office according to this country's constitution and exactly the electoral process for the 2015-2016 elections is underway and the Independent National Electoral Commission is busy receiving candidacies for provincial elections. That's a first step of a seven-election series to be concluded by the presidential and parliamentary in November 2016. President Kabila has been consulting for a national dialogue aiming to ensure peaceful elections, but really things remain unclear as far as the political situation is concerned here. The ruling majority believes the people of the Democratic Republic of Congo are the only ones to decide on the way everything has to be done and not politicians. That's why talks are to be held according to the newly elected Secretary General of President Joseph Kabila's party, the PPRD, Henri Movasakani. I hope everybody will use these talks as an opportunity to work for Congo. Congolese people and not to replace them. In fact, at PPRD, we are the People's Party. That's why people are at the center of uh, the game and uh, we can't be part of any game that might exclude people. The date for the talks to start is not yet well known, but some sources close to the government have revealed that the opening might be for next week here in Kinshasa. The political opposition remains divided as far as this dialogue is concerned. Some opponents to the Kabila's regime are describing this as another strategy for Mr. President to buy the time to try and postpone the elections and to finally spend some more time in the office. One of them is the lead of the Union for the Congolese Notion, UNC, Vital Kamere. The electoral process is already underway. Is the dialogue going to suspend the process or do we talk while it's going on? This makes things unclear and it's a trap. People are so tired of these talks of Congolese politicians. It doesn't make sense at this time. The matter is so difficult for opponents to come together here. Some other opposition members believe it's very important to be part of the dialogue in order to solve several problems here. According to them, this is an opportunity to discuss the way to hold clear and transparent elections and that's why it is so good to attend. Jean-Pierre Lissanga is the People's Opposition Front moderator. We need to meet with the Electoral Commission. We need to demand the government to free detained colleagues. But how do we do this if there is no dialogue? We need to talk. That's the tool suggested by the international community. Meanwhile, the Congolese government has sent a letter to the International Crisis Group explaining that it has proposed an active dialogue among the elections stakeholders and that it's being pursued this time. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka. Now 
Landslides following in the wake of two large earthquakes in Nepal are hampering the delivery of relief supplies to affected people, according to the UN Humanitarian Office, OCHA. The agency says that a lack of funding, only approximately 20% of the 423 million US dollars appeal has been received, is also holding back aid efforts. Hundreds of thousands of people remain homeless nearly three weeks after the first tremor hit in April. Jamie McGoldrick, the humanitarian coordinator in Nepal, spoke to Anna Kamo from UN Radio about the current situation in the South Asian country. Well, I visited some of the affected areas today by road, and I can see for myself that um, lots of landslides are taking place into these affected areas, which will make the delivery of assistance difficult and challenging. A lot of the areas around the Gorka, which is one of the epicenters, many of the villages are very remote. They're on high ridges and they're, they're sparsely populated. And so the difficulties in getting to them quickly before the rains and the monsoons are here in three or four weeks. I think those are the major challenges. And it's also then the supply of material to the affected areas by using combination of um, helicopters, obviously, small trucks, four-wheel tractors and cars. And we've actually started to use trekkers and porters, which are normally used for the tourist season. This area is quite close to Everest and the Annapurna Trail, which are very popular resorts. Now there's no tourists here, so we're using those trekkers and those porters to help deliver with mules assistance into the very remote areas. And that's something we have to accelerate between now and the next three weeks. And also the funding has been low in terms of the flash appeal response, and we're hopefully trying to generate more interest now from donors. We have a series of meetings last week in New York uh, and also here in Nepal, and there'll be something in Geneva as well with uh, some of the humanitarian donors. You mentioned uh, recently in a press release issued by your office that this is a race against time and that the implications will be severe if the funding requirements are not met. What are those implications exactly? Well, the implications are that you've got a population who are normally affected by the monsoons and it's quite a tough uh, place to live. People uh, had some of their harvest has been destroyed because of the avalanches. The normal routes down to some of the, the areas where they can pick up supplies, etc., have been destroyed by landslides. There's a lot of the terrain has been badly affected by the earthquake. There's lots of massive cracks and fissures across these areas. And with more rain in the future, this likely there'll be very large landslides in some parts of these settlements might actually disappear. That's the physical side of things. There's also the, the, the psychosocial side of things where people have been traumatized with a, a large series of um, aftershocks, three big ones, but there's, a, there's over 200 in the last four weeks. And I think that, plus living in conditions where you don't have shelter to protect you and your family and your livestock and also your harvest so you can live on. So it's important that we get the material to them, the water and sanitation support, shelter material and food. And if people are psychologically affected as well as struggling physically and isolated, these are uh, serious issues. What is being done in terms of uh, management of trauma, especially after the second earthquake? Well, there's been a lot of work done from UNICEF and other UN agencies. The idea is to try and set up uh, these centres, especially targeting children. And it's like free spaces, which will also be used for schools. And we're trying to get the schools back to offer some sort of package for children, which would be psychosocial. Obviously, a continuation of their education and some feeding programmes. And that's something that we think will help. The difficulty is that uh, some of these areas are very remote to try and get the material there and find space to clear debris and rubble is a challenge, but there's something we're working on at the moment. It is my understanding that besides the need to help to rebuild their places, the population have been also mentioning the need of seeds. Are these going to be distributing on time for planting, in your opinion? 
Well, I think in some of the areas we've managed to do that, some people have been able to retrieve some of their harvest and some of the seeds they have from previous. We'll also have to try and supply seeds of the appropriate kind at the appropriate time. Again, it's part of the logistics channel of getting those to them during that time. They have to plant before the monsoons and we have to get the right seeds. Those areas normally grow potatoes, barley and maize. And uh, we're working with the UN agencies and some donors here to try and make sure that we have a, a supply pipeline which will deal with that. When do you think it will be possible to start thinking about actually rebuilding the country? In other words, when do you envision that the emergency state will be over? Well, I mean, people themselves have started rebuilding their houses. I mean, they're not going to wait for us to come along and help them. They've salvaged a lot of material from their houses. The private sector here has been trying to push selling people with corrugated iron and new wood to rebuild their houses. People have started to clear rubble away where they can. I think that's that's one thing. There's also a program by the banks, the UN and the EU to do a PDNA. You're uh, struggling against the elements, uh, struggling against the physical side of things, and you're struggling against getting pipelines and resources in, in place on time. And you know the clock is ticking. Let's get an update now with uh, Onil and Sinzi on uh, news headlines. Algerian troops have killed 22 militants earlier to Islamic State as they held a meeting east of Algiers near Bouira. DRC President Joseph Kabila calls for national dialogue as the country prepares for elections. And Mozambicans want South Africa's President Jacob Zuma and his delegation to discuss the recent attacks on foreign nationals with their President Philippe Inusi as Zuma arrives in Maputo today. Channel African News. Thank you, Onele. The authorities in Kenya say tsetse flies have infected more than 11 million people in the western part of the country, especially in areas close to Lake Victoria. The authorities attribute the increase in infections to a lack of public sensitization of the danger posed by tsetse flies, which cause a disease known as trypanosomiasis or sleeping sickness. Dr. Emmanuel Akach is one of Kenya's specialists in the disease. The most important thing in prevention is sensitizing people so that they're aware of the flies and they try to minimize growth of things like grass and bushes around their compound so that they don't have places that they can actually eat. But the most important thing to happen is that uh, we have to use some methods, whether biological or chemical, to control the flies. Insecticides are far reaching effects on the environment and on individuals. So what is now being in current is the use of biological methods in which uh, traps are used to get the flies. Normally they die within those traps and that has managed to reduce the population of flies, particularly here in Kenya. Compare Kenya cases of flies and compare our neighboring countries, Uganda, Tanzania, Sudan. I think currently we we are not likely in a better class. Generally, I think our neighbors are watch off. Is it possible to have these uh, flies flooding someone's face or body at a go to the extent that you can count even if there are 100 or 20? Or it's just a common case of one fly and that is it? When it decides it wants to bite you, if you don't kill it, it will bite you. It's very aggressive. It infects the animals the same way it infects human beings. The vector is the same. The parasite is the same. The, the so-called uh, 
in the medical language with two nurses. There are diseases which can be transmitted from animals to humans, and there are several of them. Eh? Trypanosomiasis is just one. Do you identify trypanosomiasis, which is more complex to many of our listeners, than a fly? What's the difference there? The fly is an insect which resembles a housefly. It is the vector that carries the parasite that causes trypanosomiasis. You said it's easy to affect the human. What goes in to the extent that uh, human beings can be affected, especially children? It affects humans of all ages. And uh, secondly, the fly bites usually a cow, with the same blood that it has, which is infected from the cow, by a human being, the same way mosquitoes transmit malaria. That is actually the cycle. The dangers of having the fly biting someone, how long does it take if such a person is not cured? If such a person is not treated. That's right, on time. Incubation period slightly longer than for most diseases. It takes a month for the symptoms to start showing in a person. In humans, trypanosomiasis normally is commonly called. So the person is most of the time just drowsy. Of course, they can't do most of the work they're supposed to do. So the quality of life goes down. Eventually, it affects the nervous system and the individual dies. Who are more vulnerable and easily to catch the disease? Children, the elderly, the middle age? It's a disease which affects everyone and both sexes. Cetaphile has been known to be carried by buses long distances. That's Dr. Emmanuel Akach, one of Kenya's specialists on sets of flies, talking to James Shimanyula. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa. We're broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. Just a reminder that if, you've like, if you'd like to uh, give us your views, uh, tell us what you know or what you think about our show, you can uh, email us at info at channelafrica.co.za. In just a few months' time, the world will agree on a new set of global development goals which are expected to be more ambitious, more rights-based and more sustainable than the preceding Millennium Development Goals MDGs. The goals which will replace the MDGs have now come to be known as the Sustainable Development Goals SDGs and they took center stage at the World Health Assembly in Geneva with many governments throwing their weight behind such goals. For more on this, Elizabeth Mapa he spoke to Jeffrey Sturkio, Chief Executive Officer for the Off Rabin Martin, which is a global health strategy firm. Well, the UN in uh, 2000 adopted a set of Millennium Development Goals, and that was a set of targets for uh, which all nations in the world subscribe to, to try to improve health outcomes for women and children, to fight HIV, AIDS, TB, and malaria, to ensure there's um, a more sustainable environment, to uh, end poverty, to improve education. It was a whole set of goals to ensure that the world was moving together toward improving health for people around the world. Those goals end in 2015, and so there's been a discussion over the last couple of years what should be the next set of goals for the global community. And so they've come to be called the Sustainable Development Goals because the idea is that they want to have a set of targets that were more inclusive than the Millennium Development Goals that will actually help ensure that people, the planet, there are partnerships and there's prosperity for all. So that's sort of the way that the issues have been framed. What do you think went wrong with the Millennium Development Goals? Why didn't some countries do better? 
Actually, I think it's a question of the glass half full, not the glass half empty. When you consider that the goal was to improve between the period of 1990, which was the baseline, and 2015, the idea was to do things like you know, cut child mortality in half, to uh, improve maternal mortality outcomes so fewer women died in childbirth, you know, to fight HIV and AIDS, TB and malaria. A tremendous amount was accomplished. Um, you know, many countries did meet the goals. In fact, some of the countries that met some of the goals were surprising. Nobody ever thought they would. But they provided a way to rally around and to find the resources and to find the right kinds of tools to really address those questions. So a lot was done. You know, there are millions fewer children who die before the age of five now than in 1990. The number of women who die in childbirth is now less than a quarter of a million. That's still way too many, but it's many fewer than died a few years ago, which it was about half a million a year. So, you know, so there, there really have been important progress across the goals. I mean, the reasons that countries didn't do better, you know, have to do with a number of things. You know, at the global level, there was a lag in organization to really provide the right kind of guidance to countries. Many countries just, you know, were facing all kinds of other challenges, really weren't able to find the resources to focus. But, you know, eventually, as countries found ways to set up units devoted to the Millennium Development Goals and found ways to ensure that the right resources were put to the task, they were able to find ways to coordinate with civil society and the private sector so everybody was working together. You know, it was surprising what was accomplished in many cases. Now, I know that this criticism on the new goals being too many and ambitious, your take on this? Well, they're pretty ambitious. You know, it's, as I said, there's, it's everything from you know, continuing on poverty reduction, which I think is, is an important target for the global community, to, you know, cleaning the environment and ensuring health for all. You know, these are aspirational goals. I think that's the right way to put it, that they're ambitious, they're aspirational. Uh, they give us something to shoot for. The target is 2030, so it's 15 years away. And it will be a way to help organize movements to address those questions. Let's talk about how things will be done different this time around. You know, what will be done to help countries meet these targets and how important is extensive consultation? Well, actually, one of the criticisms of the Millennium Development Goals was that there hadn't been that kind of consultation. That was kind of a top-down thing from governments that was imposed on people. You know, that was one of the criticisms. This time, there was actually an extensive set of global consultations. You know, there were regional consultations, national consultations. There was a website that was called The World We Want 2015, in which people, you know, just anybody could post comments on what they thought the goals should be and what their reactions were to some of the the evolving targets that people were talking about. There was, uh, you know, a very broadly based set of consultations among governments. Uh, you know, it was something called the Open Working Group. Actually, it's ironic in, you know, in UN parlance when something is called an open working group, it means it's usually closed to some people, <laughs> but, but I, that's a, a somewhat facetious comment. But there were thousands of consultations in leading up to the Sustainable Development Goals, which actually haven't been adopted yet. They should be adopted at the UN General Assembly in September. But in fact, some argue that there was too much consultation because the goal, there are 17 goals now, not eight goals. There were eight Millennium Development Goals. Now there are 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And under the 17 goals, there are something uh, close to 180 different targets. So it's going to be a very complicated system to keep track of. That's Jeffrey Sturkios, CEO of the Off Rabin Martin, which is a global health strategy firm, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha in Geneva. Now, today is Wednesday, the 20th of May. 
This is the 140th day of 2015, and that means there are 225 days left in the year. Today, in 1987, two bombs exploded at the Johannesburg Magistrates Court in South Africa. The explosions claimed the lives of three policemen and injured four others. Two ANC members were granted amnesty by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for the attack. Let's listen now to some eyewitness account of the explosion. Big ball of fire, you know, and also a lot of smoke. And I think a car caught fire too. At about uh, 20 minutes past 12, I heard a, an explosion and uh, looking out the front door, I noticed smoke and the brown Reynolds uh, front disintegrated. Also, I immediately got up to investigate what happened and I noticed uh, policemen jumping out of the magistrate's courts out the windows that were blown open and actually running towards Reynolds. And uh, I still thought to myself in my mind, these people are making a big mistake because there might be a second bomb. With that, I tried to pull the front gates closed uh, to not let people come inside here. And as I was doing that, there was this terrific explosion. I've never, ever thought or experienced anything like this. I was actually lifted off my feet and thrown back against the door. And I turned around, held my hands over my head, and I heard all this glass in the shop breaking over my head, and I ran to the back. I thought, God, this is, this is it. That clip courtesy of the SABC archives taking us back in time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Africa Rise and Shine comes to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. I'm Asanda Matsaunyane, but right now it's time for our economics update with Jualani Tulu. Thank you, Asanda. Good morning. The Communication Workers Union in South Africa has threatened to bring MTN to a standstill today when members embark on a strike over wages. CWU is accusing the mobile giant of negotiating in bad faith. The union wants a 10% salary increase. The company implemented a 5% hike for all staff in March. The union's president, Clyde Mervyn. In 2014, management of MTN, when they have profit sharing, they have missed the target by 1%. Previous year, they've missed the target by more than 10%. They paid workers an ex-crasher amount of money, even if workers have not made the profit. Come 2014, workers missed the target by 1%. You tell workers we're not paying you. We can only pay you a 4% guarantee. 4% means 4% of your salary. Meanwhile, Chief Human Resources Officer at MTN, Tembanyati, says they have contingency plans in place. We are confident that we will be able to service our customers. You know, there could be areas that might be, you know, grossly impacted, such as the service centers, distribution centers, the repair centers, and some of our branded stores where you've got level one staff, those are entry-level staff members who predominantly form part and parcel of the union. 
The Biennial Petrotechs Exhibition and Conference opens today in Midrand, Johannesburg. Industry leaders, government and interested parties are expected to examine, discuss and discuss rather the latest trends in equipment, policy and service-related issues. The, state, the status of the liquid fuel industry and changes in the wholesale industry are expected to top the agenda among others. The Public Servants Association has welcomed the wage deal agreement reached with the South African government. Public service unions and the government sealed an agreement last night to raise salaries by 7%. However, the negotiations are still ongoing as the majority have not voted on the issue of an increased housing allowance for public servants. The deal has averted a potentially crippling strike by 1.3 million public servants. And finally, Tanzania's currency has retreated to an all-time low as slumping gold exports reduce the amount of foreign currency coming into the country. Gold shipments from East Africa's second-largest economy dropped 13% to $1.4 billion in the year through to March the 31st. The shilling is the worst performer this year after Ghana's SEDI among 24 African currencies. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 11.88 South African rand, at 9.62 Botswana Pula, and at 7.17 Zambian Kwacha. It is also trading at 0.64 to the British pound and at 0.89 to the euro. On the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,208 and platinum at $1,151 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $64.65 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tu. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Kulitra Njoye for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantaya Reporting for Channel Africa I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare Zimbabwe this is Simon Muchemwa From an African perspective listen to Channel Africa in English Kiswahili French Silozi Portuguese and Chinyanja Reporting for Channel Africa this is Moki Kinzaka in Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwana Ngatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thanks there to Jualani for the economics update. Let's get news from the world of sports now with Musibudi Makura. Thank you, Asanda. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with athletics news, former world marathon record holder and disposed London marathon champion Wilson Kipsang continues his busy season on the 20th of June when he takes on champion Goffi Rona for the lucrative Matoni Olmec of Marathon Crown in the Czech Republic. The New York champion had barely recovered his breath from losing his London 
crown to compatriot Khalid Kipchoge in an epic contest on the 26th of April where he stopped the clock at 2 hours, 4 minutes and 47 seconds before returning to the UK for the Great Manchester Run on the 10th of May where he came through for fourth over 10 kilometres in 27 minutes and 53 seconds. Meanwhile, Kenya's Amerikitani, the former world marathon record holder, will make her debut in the marathon after confirming her participation. Now to football news, a Mauritius footballer was bizarrely sent off for hitting the ball on his as his team lost to Nelton Namibia on Tuesday afternoon on match day three of the Kosafa Cup in Rustenburg in the northwest province. Television replays showed Bruno Ravina clearing the shot at goal with his head, but the Lesotho referee gave him his second yellow card of the Group A game, followed by a red card. Baffled, Ravina pointed to his forehead, but the match official believed he handled the ball and awarded a penalty for the Namibians who went on to score their second goal. Meanwhile in the other match of the day Zimbabwe followed up a two goal victory over Mauritius two days ago by defeating ultra cautious Seychelles 1-0 through a superb talent Chapiwa goal. Namibia will face Group A leaders Zimbabwe on Thursday at the same venue and must win to finish first and secure a quarterfinal date with the defending champions in Zambia. Meanwhile, South Africa's Bafana Bafana are confident of doing well at the Kosafa Cup. South Africa, who are one of the top-ranked teams in the region, will join the tournament at the quarterfinal stages. They will take on Botswana at the Mbrilling Stadium on Sunday afternoon. Bafana Bafana left-back Mark van Heerden is looking to stake a claim for a regular place in the team. You know, whenever you get a call-up for the national team, it's important. Um, you know, it's not just uh, for yourself. You're playing for a country. Uh, you're playing for a whole nation, 40 million people. So... It's a privilege, it's an honour, and yeah, you know, you just want to do your best to keep the call-ups coming and uh, stake, like you said, stake your claim uh, for a regular spot in the, st- in the side. Meanwhile, Ghana head coach Maxwell Kunadu has settled for his 20-man list for the 2015 Kosava Cup tournament currently underway in South Africa. Kunadu, who is leading the home-based group of the Black Stars as the tournament's guest, has drawn out a strong squad comprising of the Ghana Premier League's finest, like top goal scorer Nathan As- Asamoah, former Marisburg United forward Yakubu Mohamed, as well as Fatu Dauda, who last played for South African clubs Orlando Pirates as well as Chiba United. The team's new schedule will see them leave Accra on Thursday night and play the winner of Group B on Sunday in the quarterfinal stages. Salon Football News, the Confederation of African Football have appointed Nigerian match officials for Nigeria's opening Group G game for the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations qualifier against Chad in Kaduna on the 13th of June. FIFA badge referee Moussa Khna will be the man at the centre on match day and he will be assisted by fellow compatriots Abdul Aziz Sali as well as Sadusi Idi. The fourth official is Gomno Dauda, who was badged by FIFA back in 2013, and Andy Kwame from Liberia will serve as the match official commissioner rather for the game. The Super Eagles will contend with Egypt, Tanzania, as well as Chad for a place in the 24 in the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations tournament to be hosted by Gabon. Nigeria and Chad haven't met at full international level, and the tie in Kaduna will be one of the Super Eagles will be looking to win to stand a good chance of qualifying for Africa's most prestigious event after missing the last edition in Equatorial Guinea earlier this year. Coach Stephen Keshi has already called up a 26-man squad consisting of home-based players as he begins his latest adventure with the Super Eagles.
And finally, cricket news. Zimbabwe's cricket team have arrived safe and sound in Pakistan for a limited overs tour. Security is very tight and the army has been called in to assist. The tourists are expected to play two T20 internationals starting this Friday with the three-match one-day series to follow. All matches will take place in Lahore. Provisional Minister Shahu Kanzada says around 10,000 police officials will be on duty during the matches. We have helicopters, we have rangers. The Pakistan army has said that if the need arises, they will be here. We have to make this entire series a success. That is your sports news at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Mosubudi, for that sports update. Let's recap our top stories from uh, this hour. South African President Jacob Zuma kicks off state visit to Mozambique. Efforts to give Pan-African Parliament more powers face delay. Landslides are hampering relief deliveries in Nepal. In economics, UN lowers its growth estimate for global economy. And in sports, Namibia beat Mauritius in the Kosafa Cup. And that's where we end uh, Africa Rise and Shine for today. From myself, Asanda Matsaunyane, our producer, Mpumuzo Ramagaza, and uh, the rest of the team, we say thank you for tuning in. Comments about our show, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us an SMS on, on 27796957930. Or if you prefer to email, the address is info at channelafrica.co.za. And you can also tweet us. Our handle is at Rise Shine Africa. That's it for today. And thank you for joining us and taking us to the top of the hour. Here is Mayway with a track titled Nanan. Yeah, yeah, yeah.